0: Hello, my name is Tim McLaughlin, and this is a Maywa podcast. In this episode, we present the third part of the Working Traveler, a panel discussion that took place on Wednesday, October twenty first, two thousand and nine, in the Maywa Loft. I'd like to open it up just with general questions because I'd like the audience to become more involved. Um, and Lisa has a question. So right, I just have a question for Linda:
1: What type of um, animals do you raise and breed?
2: I raised cashmere goats. And therein lies the genesis of the last <laughs> of that idea that sparked creating a magazine. It was truly my, uh, my work with my own animals. So
1: how many do you have?
2: I, I will be very honest, I have about a half a dozen. Um, I used to have many, many more and for reasons that aren't important had to really downsize my herd. So I when I frequently travel I'm you know, quickly running to other people's animals <laughs> to to get my to get my animal fixed, but it was it was trying to understand the history of the cashmere goat, um, and and certainly how that applies in this country. That sort of was one of the fires that got lit in my brain. Uh, let me follow up that lead. Do you collect fibers when you go traveling? Well, let me rephrase that. I'm Scottish, so it's really hard. Well, I should I mean rephrase that. I'm of Scottish heritage. So I'm really bad about spending money on stuff that I don't think is going to have this intrinsic value. And so I, it would be very easy for me to do nothing but, you know, collect fibers. The problem is that you, it has to be processed fiber to bring it back in to the States. You know, I have gone in, I have pockets every time. I have, you know, I'll be out in the field and I'll you know pick up fiber, i stuff it in this back pocket, and, and then three months later I'll put it on that jacket, and I go, oh... New Zealand or, you know, oh, Mongolia. Um, I do not have, you know, much of what I see in the field is easily uh, is, is uh, easily purchased in the process form here.
0: If you didn't have these barriers to bring it back to customs, am I correct in saying that you would collect things in the... A-
2: um, you know, I've never, been a- I've never been asked that question. I don't... The fibers are just one part of the story for me. And so I think when I when I can show someone, you know, five kilos of raw cashmere, you know, we we see cashmere like this. And so if you're not a spinner, if you're not used to getting to see <clears throat> that product, you know, what, the question is, would I bring the animal back? <laughs> Maybe that's the question. <laughs> and, and yes, when I was in Mongolia, they gave me ten cashmere. They I was with this herd of eight hundred cashmere goats in uh, Bodio said, "Linda, I want to give you ten cashmere goats." And I went, "Oh, right." He means just giving the. <laughs> um, I wish I could be bringing the animals back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be where my heart would be.
0: Uh, Stephen, you also have a considerable collection, and you mentioned me just before we went to break that you had a similar experience to Sheila's in terms of dealings with the museum. Could you tell us about that?
3: Yes, and I'm going to backtrack slightly. Um, My collection I put together in 71 through 74 of the textiles primarily, and I was buying them from um, largely from collectors in Ahmedabad who were... There were warehouses that were... um, certainly as big as the whole net loft if not much bigger there were just piles of embroideries and appliques that were all being um there was a group of 50 70 women who were using large scissors to cut them up into little patchwork to make the progenitor of that camel and that elephant there that used to be if you remember from pier one type stores there used to be embroidered Elephants, camels, etc., that you could buy in, in import stores in the 60s and 70s. And those all were covered with patchwork from fabulous embroideries. Magnificent. And I built a collection. I had a choice of 20,000 um, yeah. embroideries and appliques uh, from which I built a collection that's now about 600. And um, I gave it all to the Mingay Museum about two years ago in San Diego. But I went through a similar situation where I... Was economically challenged. I had um, two different museums, particularly interested in it, but uh, oh, so consecutively. But the one that I was working with very closely was the Richmond Museum, uh, the, the in Richmond, Virginia, the Museum of Art in Richmond Museum, uh, <laughs> Virginia Museum of Art in Richmond, Virginia, and. Uh, they came up four times to Maine from Richmond, brought their director, brought their curator. They, they were, and I was tailoring because I was so glad to have a outlet that I was going back to India and finding pieces that, that filled it out and doing the documentation. And, prepa- and then they just, the director changed and it just dumped. Yeah. And there I was. And I, I was so upset by that that it just pulled the rug out from under me and I couldn't do anything with it or about it for about 10 years. But also, I had because I had decided to part with it, I'd been asked to part with it.
0: Are there any uh, questions from the eyes about the collection process? Obviously, it's a very attractive idea to be able to travel the world with the idea of acquiring objects for either your own or another uh, collection. Lisa. I have
1: a question for Sheila, and um, I've just sort of picked up pieces. I used to collect antique clothing, and I went to India about 20 years ago, and so taking the textiles, I started collecting pieces there, and just in Southeast Asia. When you talked about the cataloging, I used to work in an auction house and sort of set up a cataloging system for my own pieces, and I've been recording information, and just my own stories with it, and photographing it, and the pieces were bought, and when I heard you talk about the fact that when the pieces were then sold and no one was interested in the background information, I was sitting there thinking, oh, should I keep continue to do that or, for my own personal satisfaction of doing it in curiosity or is
4: right. that disconnect The history stays with you and the knowledge and yet it just gets passed on? Well,
5: I'm in the position where it's very difficult to say, but I think you should keep on doing it because really the documentation is almost as interesting as the textiles mm-hmm. themselves. And I feel sure that one day um, it'll finish up somewhere or mm-hmm. useful. Well,
4: I was wondering when you auctioned, um, I was thinking afterwards, when, you auctioned,
1: when the pieces were auctioned off, um, would it have been better for you to provide some of the information so that it stays with the piece, even though you're sort of the keeper of the knowledge? Some of
5: I didn't have a lot of choice because that was when I'd fallen down steps and broken my back. And I was lying in bed, and the Christie's woman from Christie's auction house came, and, and she just went through my pieces and I couldn't move and she wasn't a bit sympathetic I have to say <laughs> and, and so she just removed the things she wanted that she thought would get the highest prices yeah. and um, the rest was sent to a, a local auctioneer who did much better, I mean he made a feature of it and publicised it so it was on television and then I fell over again well, so I didn't that? make the television studios, oh, It's a ghastly time anyway it's, it's gone now. But I've got all the information. Obviously, a lot of it's not of any use. But, and, of course, quite a lot is in my book, Embroidered Textiles. So at least um, it's record. not all of it by any means, but quite a lot of it is in there, the most important pieces. So part of it
1: has
5: been documented?
0: Yes. Okay, so I think we have another question back here. Go ahead. Well, the documentation has led on
1: to my
2: next curiosity. And that that has to do with you all being especially unique in your commitment to communicate, either by the written word or through film or so on. And I was just kind of curious, did the love of
4: writing and communicating uh, come before the travel really kicked in in your life, or was it a product of your world experiences?
5: I've always written. I've always written poetry, actually. (laughs) I've had poetry published. I've always written. I just automatically write. And um, then I I won a couple of prizes for for writing. And uh, so then books started being published. But in a way, the two are separate. Writing has always been... Writing and language, you see, were always my background, really. And Mm -hmm. embroidery was my hobby. I never meant to collect. I'm sure most of us who collect never had the slightest intention of collecting, really. We just bought things for various reasons. I often bought them because the poor woman who made it was desperately poor and wanted to sell it. Or I was at a market and some woman came rushing up to the bus, (coughs) banging on the bus windows, $10, $10 for some lovely thing she'd made. I find it very hard to say no when people obviously desperately need the money. Um, And I have to say that quite a few things I acquired for that very
6: reason, rather
5: than mm-hmm. that I loved them. And others just because I thought they were irresistible. Unfortunately, rather a lot were irresistible.
6: <laughs> <it turned> <laughs> <out>. <laughs> I had a question for Sheila. Is I was wondering from after I saw your slides, uh, in, in whatever little travel I do, in terms of, I mean, to see the various weaves of the northeast of India or, the part, or other parts of the country. I've always found, I mean, it, if it is a um, folk or style of weaving or a tribal style of weaving, I've, I've always found a commonality. I mean, where, I mean, whether the tribe is situated on very far away apart, or so. I had a question. I mean, we do extensive travel all over the world. Do, I mean, when you source embroideries from all parts of the world, right from Pakistan to up to. Uh, Europe Is, I mean, do you find that? Is there a commonality, a thread that binds all of them? A lot
5: of the motifs are shared because they are based on human experience you have the tree of life for example we all see trees shed their leaves and die and come back again in the spring the rising sun, this sort of thing um, you get their they're universal those sort of motifs stitches are sometimes also found in different parts of the world in rather odd ways I found a particular stitch in um, oh dear where did I find it I think it was Albania and it came from um, from India I might have remembered that incorrectly but there were two places so far apart You think, well, how on earth did that happen it happened because there was some trading between the two places a long time ago and the people have picked up stitch also um, cross stitch is an obvious universal way of decorating a weave that's clear things like that that you you would expect to find colour as well there are certain colours red is very (coughs) popular it expresses life and blood and emotion green is a calm sort of colour these are kind of universal uh, aspects but nevertheless you can distinguish embroidery immediately One, even one village for the next village five miles up the road will be quite different it's hard to say really why sometimes it depends on the local availability of fabrics and materials and threads and superstitions and beliefs and obviously you see women would embroider not Generally, in the privacy of their own homes, but sitting together yep. somewhere, so that they would copy each other and be inspired by each other. This also leads to a certain um, unity of design.
0: Do you, is this something that you experience in weaves? Do you feel that weaves
6: have a commonality? We, um, yeah. I mean, it was funny. I've, um, I had this. I was doing a small project in the in the northeastern part of India where they still weave and wear it themselves and they don't sell much in the market. So I I was carrying this book uh, called called Weaves on Guatemala and immediately they pounced on it and they started saying, oh, this is what we do, this is very same what we have. So I was very kind of intrigued as to how it's two separate worlds altogether apart and it almost seemed to me like probably at some point of time it was, I mean, we were all one into a common globe, into a common... One country, in, I mean, maybe which got separated later or something.
5: But weaving, you do have the unity of the actual threads up and down and in and out. I mean, that's a universal thing. Where embroidery, is a tremendous freedom in what you mm-hmm. do with threads and how you decorate a textile, which is completely different. I think it's bound to be more uniformity in weaving, really.
0: I'd like to leave motifs and go back to a, a thread once again that we talked about just before the motifs, which was about writing mm-hmm. and collecting. And, y- Linda, your travel, it, perhaps more than anyone else, on a regular basis to meet your magazine publishing deadline, mm-hmm. demands that you travel. How does, writing, <coughs> how does writing and the need to write when you travel, how does that, how does that work? How does that influence where you decide to go?
2: I don't think that my writing, my need to write, if I understand correct, your question, but I don't think my need to write um, determines my location. I mean, the, the story, obviously, or, or the, the point that I need, I think, needs to be made is what determines it. I actually do my best writing on a plane. I am so happy with my laptop out. 12-hour flight, great six- hour layover wonderful um, that really is from a writing perspective I have no problem um, you know I, I can be very anonymous sitting in an airport and just and, and the same you know I, unless I start and and I actually I really don't consider myself a writer and I I, I, I don't um, I'm a storyteller and and so when I sort of started to write it was with the idea what's always in my brain is oh my gosh, the most amazing thing and I want to you know, that's the voice of the story because that's I think probably what we all are experiencing is that that enthusiasm that energy to want to share it. so I, I am you know, surrounded by incredible writers and yet I'm just really someone that wants to go shake you and say, you know, here's this story and the magazine's the the vehicle for
0: that.
3: Steve, you a point? Yeah, I, I'm just sharing on the same thing. I do consider myself a writer. I um, always have been a writer or th- always thought I was a writer. I started as a poet as well. I went to India to be a writer. Um, I did not have any photographic skills when I went. Village India, the book that um, Charlotte mentioned earlier, or maybe you did, I can't remember, there aren't very great photographs in there. There are just a lot of them. Um, and uh, I... You know, I now have 250,000 selected images, but that came about because I felt that I wanted to illustrate what I was writing. But first and foremost, for me, it is storytelling, but it's trying to reach as broad an audience I've chosen to try to, to write in a style that I hope is accessible to a maximum number of people. And I, I find myself irritated by what I view as elitist academic writing that is written for the chosen few. Um, You know, even when I did my doctorate, there were books written about my specific field that I couldn't understand. Um, I find that, you know, that kind of intentional obscurity ludicrous. But also, um, for me, unlike, uh, and I admire people who write, as you described your writing fairly, you you have deadlines to meet. I chose 10 years in India of travel and work I would not put pen to paper until I had been there 10 years, other than my notes, because I felt that so many scholars err by writing too soon in their Mm. interpretation of a culture which is very different from them, and I felt that I needed to immerse myself, and I take a long time. I don't write every day, nor every month, nor every year. I write when I'm ready. I
0: know we have a lot of travelers in the audience. I invite you to ask... Members of the panel, the mechanics of their writing—do they carry a notebook? Do they? Well, this actually,
1: that was one of the thoughts that I
0: had earlier on—is
1: the record keeping generally? You know, there, there's, um, and it's obviously photographs, journals, um, the collections that one brings back. So, you know, I, you know what? How? Do, what does the working traveler need to have to have a successful trip? I mean, you know, when they get back. <laughs>
0: would like to do you have it would you like to direct it oh moment? you know uh I,
1: you know i think everybody and we've heard Charlotte's stories and seen her wonderful journals and things you know so so i'm somewhat familiar with that but you know so others i would be you know and and we've been exposed to you know to, to sheila's and in, in her uh, presentation last night the, the, for instance the photographs one of the things about it was your photographs are these very personal shots of individuals and you know, does it take a long time to get to know these individuals before you can take these, this type of photograph? You
5: know? Depends where you are. Obviously, photographing women is always very difficult, and um, many places you just cannot photograph the women. You're not to 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 at all. The men won't let you. And, um, but otherwise, I just I don't know what it is really. I've never been in, had any training in photography, and um, my son is a brilliant photographer. And he just advised me what camera I should have. It does all sorts of things, I've no idea how to do them. I just point it and press. But it's something about a scene, a person, a detail that appeals to me, and I just take them. I don't throw many away. They're usually okay. Quite why, I don't know, but they are. I mean, if, for example, in my book Ambulance, the first photograph inside is of a camel lying down in a little square of sand. Now, that camel is a tourist camel in Chiva, and it stands there all day with tourists sitting on its back. It was a female, actually, called Mira, I think she was called, um, to be photographed, and that's her job. Well, I stayed on in Chiva after the tourists had gone. I was there in the evenings and so forth. And in the evenings, I've watched this camel. And as <clears> the <throat> last tourist went, it flopped down its little bit of sand. God, they've gone. And there was just a stone building behind, and a little door and a light. And it was just so perfect, this camel, and the door and the light, just an old electric light bulb, bear bulb, and the stone of the building. Now that I waited quite a while to get, because I could see this camel was going to collapse, and it was going to be a good photograph. Others I just shoot. And
0: how, how, do you, how do you do your retina to the Documentation? Do you carry a stack of notebooks, or no? I
5: have a little red notebook that I buy from um, Smiths before I go, and um, I write notes in that. Sometimes I write notes, and sometimes I write actually what I'm going to write. It depends.
0: And do you have your notebooks preserved from all your yes, I have,
5: yes, I have. I I record what people say. Conversations Mm -hmm. are very revealing, and those you tend to forget when you get home. The actual words Mm -hmm. used. those I think are well worth recording. Yeah.
0: But do you ever feel like, in an act of traveling, you just you would like to leave all the documentation behind and just walk away? Is that a common feeling, or is that would that be the worst?
5: Oh, the yeah. worst! I mean, I pocket it before I ran through a burning building. I'd make sure I'd got my notebooks with me. You
2: know, I, I the question you're asking was exactly the question I asked myself before I started off, which was. There must be a right way to do this. I must know if, if the right way to do this before I, I set out. And and what I what I learned was that the right way was what was right for me,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and that I I find that if I'm busy trying to get the exact number of animals you have and how much hay they eat and everything else, and I'm cha 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 I'm no longer engaging with you. It's just that simple. <coughs> and. And unless I've got a, a, an academic need to have certain statistical um, uh, information, my story is going to have much more meaning if I'm not as focused on some of that stuff. Now, that's not to say that I don't do it, but I rarely have anything with me. I've got to rely on this, which is usually by evening time. I want nothing to do with anybody I've you know, gone into my yurt or whatever but that's when yeah, i've got to you know sort of throw up the day <laughs> back out again and and quickly and quickly jot it down you, know? you did seize the day <laughs> no i don't I, and truly sometimes i don't mean that but you no know, that's really i think that's probably the one thing i've learned is that you know it's got to be you, you don't want to lose that in that integrity
3: and that bond um, mm. g- Going back to um, what Linda, Linda, your response of when I was younger, um, I could remember things a lot longer mm. than I can. <laughs>
5: now, but, um.
0: So uh, you you have you have a particular your means uh, of travel a evolved over time, but you have a number of things that you have to keep in your head as you're traveling. There's business purchasing going on at the same time. Mm-hmm. You have the interpreter that you have to keep an eye on. And, yet, and you're also doing photographic uh, documentation and video documentation and notes. How do you how do you know which subject to focus on at any one time?
4: Well, you always focus on the wrong thing. And yeah. Yes, the right <laughs> thing. <laughs> That's my experience. But I also, I mean, I'm also, collect, I, everywhere I go, I take those company Lee Valley tools, you know, those little oh, yeah. metal, th- box of metal tins. I put all, any village I'm in with, I'm working with them uh, or or visiting them or whatever, I get them to show me all the plants they died with and they go, and we have a huge collection of these. It's the trip is on them, everything on the back is in their language, I get them to either write or tell me so I can hear it and I write it and then look up the Latin what, uh, botanical what are name. They?
3: What are these that you take from uh
4: They're little boxes, you get a tin box and inside is all these tins. They've got clear lids, so I put all the seeds or plants or ev- anything uh, the, the, the dye material in, so I can understand, go back and research because I often don't understand immediately what they're talking about. I have I collect all the yarns and colors and fabrics and stick them in all kinds of books. And I I, I travel now with binders rather than journals. So much I've just gone to that format. I love my journals, but. Um, so we're always photographing and videoing and documenting and, on lots of levels. I'll, I have no problem giving the camera to somebody else, uh, even somebody locally, although it's frustrating when they wipe out all the <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> That's stuff open. and I don't <laughs> put the wrong tape in, whatever. Um, so uh, we, I have many, I'm always with labels, I label everything when I'm there in the village, you know, I, I have these ta- ta- tag labels, I never travel without them, you know, those tag labels that have a string and a tag and so I put them on the fabric immediately in the hotel room or in the home that we're staying because I'll never remember them try to write out well, write what I pay what the eight, eight, uh, year is the date the person um, who's made the piece what the di- they say the dyes are the fibers are whatever as much information as I can I travel with glue sticks um, sharp peas just all kinds of that kind of equipment when I'm traveling as well as these tins I did want to mention about, um, just to clarify the, I don't know if it's clarifying, um, the getting, what's that thing for the photographs? Releases. Releases. Um, We are very, uh, we very much, we really don't photograph people until we really know them. I'm not comfortable photographing people unless I've had, uh, I I work with them. They all know what our photographs go to, to. They all know that it's part of the promotion of their work. But I'm always we always take down the names of people for instance Mahesh's wife she cannot she is cannot have a photograph take uh, she is in photographs Mahesh is, is our block printer so she's in photographs but we cannot publish any photograph of her and then that's her request so we do find out what we do let them know about what may be used made what might the photo be used for and check whether or not, but a release form would mean nothing to them. They'd wonder what, they probably were signing <laughs> something that they would do want to sign or something. They wouldn't know that, but we're very careful. We have so many photographs and so many people we work with and we don't need to photograph, we don't need to publish anything that that they would not like. And we do make that, um, if, if it's strictly a, a man who said you can't photograph, we're, we're not quite, Satisfied with that. We do want the woman to be there and say, This is, could we photograph, for instance, Bolikan, who does our blocks, we can photograph. His wife is very comfortable if the photograph's not published in India. It's published outside of India, it's fine. So there's all kinds of levels of things, but that conversation is actually very, very interesting to have. I,
0: have
3: I, I really like what uh, Charlotte's just saying. In, It's bringing to life the experience of actually being there as a working traveler. I'd like to hear more of that, perhaps more colorful anecdotes about the actual, what it's like. Like you started off saying, well, when you hit the ground, you know that you've you've, you've seen the world and conquered the world, but I know that when you're traveling on business or as a working traveler, you've got to be more on your toes. You've got to be alert to things. You've got to be perceptive. You can't lose your passport or your credit oh. card or any of that. I have so dreams you're about in a that.
1: Different
3: world. <laughs> you're in a different world than even with an experience than you are when we're at home. And I, and it would be interesting, I think, to hear some more colorful stories about it, what it's like, as it personally and, and psychologically. I have as
0: a question here to ask them what your worst travel experience am, was. Well, yes. <laughs> so mm. maybe we can open that up now. I'm not sure who would like to dive into that one. <laughs>
3: I'll, I'll come there in a minute okay. to think what it might be. There's so many.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh,
5: anyone want
0: to take that
5: question?
2: You know, I, I think one of the things I was hoping from today's because this is a great thrill, I think, for all of us to you know just sort of be comparing notes here, is to you know hear this exchange of anecdotes, just as you say, because those are all the little stories. Um, one of the things that has come to me is when I'm put in a, you know, I kidded earlier about the food, and, and I just I just don't have a good stomach, and I be as respectful as I can, and sometimes I think, you know, oh, this could be really bad if I have to eat this. <laughs> um, but one of the things for me that is incredibly difficult is when I am put in situations where I see incredible abuse and we are whether or not it's human abuse or animal abuse um, things that at least for me as a professional it is very hard to put away you know my reaction to that situation and and I have to figure out how I'm gonna deal with the upsetment Um and I've gotten um, I was uh, at a show a couple of years ago and you know, someone was asking about the magazine, and within a moment they said, "Oh, there, you know, sort of bad things that happen in all these places. I don't know if I want to read about them." And you come to this, you come to this sort of crossroads. Okay, well, how much is too much information? And yet, how much do you have to include to make the story real? And if I can just share a story, this is, and I have not. I've only shared this once at a at a public level i uh i went on a story in new zealand this past um in january to go rescue these sheep and in um with a helicopter and uh, in the mountains and it was this wild thing and these sheep get airlifted so that they don't die in the winter time and uh it was quite exciting and, it, and there was a message behind it and there were four sheep and at the very end of this sort of two-hour wild and woolly chase, um, we, it's hard for, we, we brought these sheep back to home, and uh, they had been airlifted in this helicopter, and they were set down in, in the back of the truck. And we you know, untied their legs, and we, we righted them. And one of the sheep was dead. And here was this animal that literally 15 minutes ago I had been on a mountaintop that I knew it was scared because it had been rescued by a helicopter, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I'm looking at this dead sheep, and I will tell you I was so angry with myself and with the condition because I, although our our intent was good to rescue these sheep that were would not have survived the winter, I had to really question what had we done, in losing one in the rescue. Um, you know, as a working traveler and things like that, you know, I had no way of anticipating that, um, and I had to decide whether or not I was going to include that in the story. I ultimately decided not to include it. Um, and I don't think I I have any less integrity, uh, but I, I also know there is something to be said about... Um, what is effective journalism, and, and you know, what are just sometimes facts you need to leave behind. And that's an ongoing challenge for me. I don't know if that...
3: Stephen, the question about worst? The worst. Um, the, you know, there really could be. <laughs> with as much travel as I've done, there could be many answers to that. But uh, one that, that came to mind... Um, I am a very trusting human being, and I am also forgetful. And so I have left my camera, left my wallet, left my, you know, most precious things, often in places where they could easily be stolen, and, um, you know, in a shop, in the middle of a market, in the middle, on the street, whatever, um, and had people way more often than not run after me with my you know camera that's more than they make in a year um or my wallet with the money in it and my passport or whatever that's that's the norm for me uh in wherever i travel any place um afghanistan it's happened in um, you know in in many many countries where um one would not expect a, a westerner would not expect it to happen a person who has not had those experiences but about um no, eight years ago or so, I was leading a tour uh, for the Smithsonian uh, in in India, and uh, I was in Arissa, and I went to the, the village of one of the women that I profiled the other night, Bidulata, who who did the wall paintings in white. Um, and I know them and her very well. And I had they knew we were coming, and I brought my group into her home, and we were served tea and uh, coconut water, and um, and she was they were so wonderful to my group. My camera was stolen in their house. and um, it was so upsetting because I knew what it did to these lovely wonderful people that this very valuable camera was stolen in my you know in their home, inside their home, and I had just put it down, and it wasn't that I was being so careless. It was just we were the group, and I was involved with them, and it was a place where I was very safe, and things were very safe, as they are in any in any home, really, basically. They, of course, put out the word. You know, it was such shame to them, such deep, deep, deep shame that that happened to me. And then I was also really upset because it would... I was afraid, influenced the attitudes of my tour members as well, that that would be an experience that's common in India, and it's extremely uncommon in India. And so, know, that also I took on, and finally they found it, some little kid, some young boy, not little kid, but young boy of about 11, had seen it. And his family, you know, was extremely poor. And he had seen an opportunity, he was not from that family, had run off with it and hidden it under um, a rice uh, straw mound. And it was discovered. And then my concern was the boy being beaten, which, of course, you know, and how can I intercede on his behalf and just say it's okay, you know, I understand the circumstances that this went into, and, of course, you know, he's going to take that opportunity, and it's okay. And with the family, it's all right. I still love you and care for you, and I'm not going to judge you. And with the group, you know, that was all of those things that were going on, it was really a, a, a very black moment in my life, those emotional
0: ones. roller coaster yeah. that I got
3: down. Yeah.
4: I had my passport stolen and <laughs> cut <coughs> during the earthquake, and it was weird busy working, 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 working about the, uh, with the earthquake, I kind of couldn't think about it, but every once in a while at night I would go hey, what am I going to do, yeah, I have to go to Delhi or something, get a new passport, really, I've never lost my passport, and um About a week into this, and we were uh, completely involved with the earthquake in Kutch, uh, the passport was found in a little girl's bed. Mm -hmm. And so we were asking her, why did you take the passport? And she was explaining that I had... She'd asked me what it was way back, and I'd said that it was... uh, That's how I... only way i can go home is with this passport (gasps) i don't want you to go home (laughs) 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 but i don't ever i really don't find i find more bad things happen here i really don't find i have if it is it's easily uh let go of i really don't find i remind uh, you about
0: one thing Oh, what
4: is (laughs) that? say i forget that's why there's a certain
0: trip to pakistan and some film
4: Oh, <laughs> oh! I took a, tr- I had a most fantastic trip from Ka- from Karachi, all the way up to the Kundra Pass. So we went all the way north to south, uh, or south to north, to um, Gilgit Hunza, every Swat Valley. It was a fantastic trip, and uh, I had uh, fifty taken fifty rolls of film. I was very fascinated with the. Um, uh, trucks, the painted trucks, which are fantastic, and oh, w- went to see weavers and embroiderers and rug makers and natural dyers, and I took a of photos, photos, watch photos. I got here, I always take them to G King, this was before digital, But they know my photos. And uh, I didn't get a call back, because usually they phone and they go, come, look at that photos and so I didn't get called. Then, then I got this call, Charlotte, you need, you need to come up here. Every roll was black. <laughs> <laughs> every, they were just sick to tell me about this, but every I had a shutter problem with my camera. <laughs> so you can imagine 50 rolls of film. Yeah, I'm sort of going, okay. I uh, had one
0: of those, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
4: so I don't really find safe. Was it safety-wise that was the question? It
0: was travel disasters. Uh,
4: oh, travel disasters. I wouldn't say I've ever had a travel disaster. I'm extremely... Um, this may come as a surprise to you guys, but I'm quite detail-oriented. <laughs> I'm, I'm all about <laughs> organizing. <laughs> so I've organized you guys all for two weeks. Um, no, I really, really, really organize a lot, and I'm always sort of really checking, and uh, everything is up to nose too. I, so I don't actually find that um, there's too many disasters. Really lovely human stories that come out of maybe... Um, miscommunication. Uh, th- I think that's probably my most disastrous thing, is things caused by miscommunication and going, whoa, I didn't... Mm. I mean, I, I was uh, on a bus in, in Kutch, going out to the Rapa district, and I was one time... Ta- I don't travel a lot on my own. I usually have travel with people, but this time I was on a bus on my own, and this Rabari woman laid into me and just going on and on and on and it was she they're very strong women as you know you met some of them uh and they're very uh loud in fact and so she was really at me and I couldn't understand anything but I thought gosh you know I couldn't imagine what it was it seemed really um that she knew me and I kind of recognized her and she got the whole bus involved so, uh, I finally, somebody was able to speak a bit of English, and she was, they were explaining to me that she's really mad at me, at m- me and my company, because, um, we get this work done in, in Demetka, block printing work, and they need block printing work for different, um,
0: so ceremonies? The bari
4: need that. The uh, the Ajrak, and, uh, and wear it, and, uh, work with it, and, um, we, uh, pro- we pl- were placing such large orders, they couldn't make orders for the local market. Mm-hmm. So she was explaining that to me. And it, until it really was a, kind of those moments where it made me realize that, of course, is not going to say anything to me and not pl- take an order from me mm-hmm. um, because they, uh, like the orders, And I could easily have changed the order of the orders. I could, you know, there was always two or three months we don't get anything, because we don't need anything here. I could just have shifted those months to be the months when they needed to have work in the local markets. But I would have known if she hadn't have had that freak out on me, (laughs) which was a freak out for me. But uh, I would say those are the moments that I go, oh... How many moments I'm not getting educated towards? Like, how many moments am I missing of what we're doing wrong? And that was about three or four years ago, and everything switched. And and it was only from then did I start to really get that it mattered when we placed our orders. If what we truly wanted, which i have always saying, we truly want a local market to develop, it was something I didn't think through. And we now are very sensitive to when the local market... Because they don't produce for local market when they're slow and sell it to the local market at the perfect festival or whatever they if they're going to do it they need to do it and sell it do it and sell it so we had to <coughs> make our orders as such that that was the local market was being looked after because truly the local market is the stronger of the two markets for local and export
6: <laughs> you must have a quite a different <laughs> a lot of stories <laughs> well uh, I as Charlotte I I mean it's really we have faced op- apart from people not who, Wanting to work, but really horrible situations. It's really, but only it was uh, once I was traveling to Bihar and I was trying to look for sources of of tasar and the I mean the weavers. There's a very strong Hindu community and a Muslim community over there, and they're always at kind of not I mean very good term terms in it. And I mean when you're traveling there, you have to know which side you are in. I mean. I mean, whether it's a Hindu person taking you around to inside the Muslim communities or a Muslim taking you around, so, and that can create a lot of sparks, and which I had no clue about. So, I mean, it apparently happened uh, that I was traveling with a Muslim, and he was trying to take me around uh, um, various parts, and... Although, I mean, nothing really happened in front of me, but you could feel this undercurrent. Every home I was walking into, you could feel, I could feel this undercurrent, this tension, this. And that wasn't nice at all. And that, some I mean, that when you're traveling alone uh, with someone else who you don't know that very well, it can be quite, quite, quite scary Mm -hmm. and uh, not a nice feeling, which... I mean, normally when I travel for looking for techniques and craft and skills I always want to go back and see and work with them, but then that was one place where I never went back because that feeling of the tension between the two communities, it was too much. Political involvement um, uh, was more stronger than actually the craft interchange and uh, yeah, that was something. And we also have these strange things in our village which are very unpleasant but funny as dogs jumping on our warps and uh, <laughs> cats uh, <laughs> trying to make a cushion in the uh, order which is uh, about to go away <laughs> in a week's time, so, yeah, we deal, deal, deal with it though, but... Uh. <laughs>
5: uh, any
6: questions for the...
5: What, you don't panel? want to know, know my disasters? <laughs> Yeah. well i keep
1: quiet if you don't <laughs> <laughs> no, you alluded to one in your talk which was that last night. Yeah.
2: and
5: I've forgotten what
1: it
5: Albania. was Albania. Albania Albania, no no that wasn't what I was thinking of Got a new disaster well, <laughs> a general disaster is when because you're white people think you have medical knowledge oh. and that's always very sad they bring babies to you who are obviously seriously ill and they think that you can cure them. And that is, I always find, really tragic and very difficult. A specific disaster was in Yemen, where um, I'm never so foolish as to get into a lorry with unknown men in the middle of the night. But I was waiting at a garage because a road forks off to Mocha on the Red Sea, which is where Mocha coffee comes from, used to come from. And it's just a little side road where well, it goes across a desert, it's quite a big side road. And this garage said, oh, we'll find you transport onto Mokka, Mocha. Just wait here, and we'll wait till somebody reliable comes along. So this lorry finally came along after about three hours, and they said, you'll be all right on this. I thanked them and got in. And there were two drivers, and first of all, they'd got cans of Heineken beer. Well, of course, Yemen is no alcohol, and they can get that from the coast. And they were swishing this. I can be a, then they started ogling me like this. And then, then they started saying, sex, sex. <laughs> and, yes. and it was um, getting dark. And they said, sundown, sundown, sex, sundown, sex. Oh, God, what am I going to do? So what I did, I remember the driving test, where when you have the driving test, the instructor says, stop, bangs the dashboard, and you have to s- emergency stop. So I thought, I'll try that. So I said, stop. And they were so shaken, He stopped. I had a little bag, because i never travelled with anything more than a little bag, precisely because of this sort of thing. And I ran and ran and ran. And, of course, they pursued me as long as they could. And it was a scrubby desert with little low bushes around. And in the end, I hid behind one. And finally, they gave up. And they went back again. They obviously were not going to mock her at all. So, anyway, I stood by this road, and I started walking along it, because nothing came for hours. Finally, a pickup truck came. And... Um, he just drove on then his lights started I just saw his breaking lights gone so I ran and ran and I jumped on the back and I arrived in Moka covered in sand in a bit of a state <laughs> I think that's the worst thing that's happened to me well, wasn't nice because well, yeah. you're so vulnerable I mean there's nobody around at all mm-hmm. and there are two of them and one of you and oh it's not nice mm-hmm. So. Um,
0: I'd like to follow this up because before the break you said and I quote, I live for danger Yes,
5: (laughs) but not that sort of danger I mean that sort of danger you can find on your doorstep really
0: (laughs) So so then where would you draw the line?
5: (laughs) 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 I would draw a line at um, going into places where you immediately feel very apprehensive uh, because you're not sure and and Mm. you know it can be dangerous That, that I like but pursued by ardent Yemenis in the middle of the <laughs> night is not something I would put in the same category.
0: Does it have anything to do with the amount of planning that you, you can do before you, like if you're caught in a situation that's more uncomfortable than you would undertake something a little more dangerous if you knew you could plan for it?
5: <laughs> <laughs> no, I never plan, certainly not for danger. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess
1: I'd just like to say I've read your three books, and I've read lots and lots about women travelers and adventurers. And um, you know, I would read your books, and I would go like, "She did not live through this. She did not live." Yes, she must have lived through it. She wrote the book. <laughs> but I've been very impressed by it. what an intrepid traveler you have been. My heavens,
5: foolhardy is probably a better <laughs> word. No, just amazing. You've got to take risks, I think, yeah, too. Well, there were change. there were a lot of risks in those books. <laughs>
0: You've not- obviously come up, if I can say this, you've obviously come out the other side of life intact from all those.
5: Risky. Not not quite intact, but <laughs> falling downstairs. That's a
0: staircase <laughs> in Holland. Yeah, no
5: yeah, one right that, I've would have I met my Waterloo on a staircase hmm. in Holland, where well, they go, you see.
0: Do you have any regrets about traveling or not going to, ever not going to a place? Is there, are there places that you would have liked to go on, but more daylights?
5: A lot of places I would like to have seen sooner than I did mm-hmm. before they changed so much. But um, I don't think so. And if I thought, where would I like to go next, I'm not at all sure, really. I've got a sort of hankering to s- stay home for a while.
0: OK, <laughs> 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 um, let's take the question from the audience no, we'll move to Steve. I'm
1: curious about what, how you feel about the environmental impact of your travels. Mm. We, we're hearing all of that about the environment and your drive to see places. I, I like to know. Mm-hmm. It's a I'm struggling mm-hmm. with that right
4: now. Truly. Because it's, it's a flight. Shipping goods. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, the carbon yeah, I'm, I'm thinking
1: of both your personal, yeah. each of your personal flight and, and the lifestyle that it's encouraging and mm-hmm. the whatever. How do you, how
0: do you, how do you mm-hmm. deal with it? Can elaborate on that maybe? Yeah, it's
4: a struggle. Uh, I have to say. That I haven't wrestled completely with at all, of whether it is needed at at all. Yeah, I ask that of Maywa all the time and me and what it is I do. Um, It's easy to make it sound, uh, what is it? Not righteous, but kind of. Rosie, you know, like you're doing the right thing <coughs> for the world. Yeah, contract kind of is a word I'm thinking of. Um, but it's not that simple at all. It's very complex. And uh, I would say between the, the fact that we're, we're shipping goods as weighed against providing uh, incomes at a time when the local market isn't there, does it continue? Is it sustainable? No, it's, uh, it's constant. Questioning. I don't know. Uh, I and you know, I don't know. I do know that. Um, let me search here. Yeah, you can tell. I, I struggle with it all all the time. Um, I think w- there's been such an un uh, even or uh, such a footprint from the west uh, Western influence to so many of these countries that they there's still that belief there that um, everything Western is great, everything, you know, TV and all this stuff is so great that there is a um, you do feel a, when, the, when the dialogue gets going and, they, and they'll say to me, you know, well, what kind of TV do you have? I don't, know, I don't have a TV. My kids haven't grown up with TV. I can't have a TV. I'll just watch it all <laughs> the time and it's just all yuck. those kind of conversations are not part of their day at this point as they're coming um into a a so-called a modern world and i think it's quite shocking for them to hear somebody who has come from that world to go go i don't know be careful here (laughs) it's not all i I i think i have something to offer when i'm traveling just from that perspective um i don't uh they as they find out about what we're doing and what how I've brought my children up and so forth, I think that is very important uh, to have those conversations. And I feel that I have to... Sp- I travel for long, fairly long periods of time, so I've gone usually six to eight to ten weeks, and I stay in villages for fairly long time. For the, But I do, do, do think that exchange is hugely important. And I like to hear their perspective, too, um, about, you know, they're also struggling with it all, really. Um whether or not it's good to should they you know what should they What should where should their priorities be I think we all are
3: and that's such a good question yeah Um, Mm -hmm. I think that um, I I may be erring in the evangelical um, (laughs) but uh, that's one of the reasons why my work over the last 10 years has taken a direction towards women's identity versus craftsmanship um, is that I feel I have to do something Um, If I'm going to have that carbon footprint, if I'm going to do something, I have to do something that's a little bit, and that's why I say it's in the danger of evangelical and who am I to make that judgment of what I'm doing, but I have to do something that is proactive to try to help humanity's vision of itself, um, understanding of itself and its own potentials to make change, which is what the Sonobai book is about, for example, in the exhibition of the film, is to, you know, we, we... we, we have to change and we have to do it so I question in the same in similar ways to you Charlotte um, about ah, ah, constantly about how can I do that and my aunt how can I justify flying mm. the way that I do um, or driving the way that I do um, and the only answer that I have is that I am trying to do something with it that is not for me um, I mean, it does feed something in me, but it's also trying to share uh, something that's of, I hope, of value uh, as building a bridge between communi- in communication and giving a voice to the women of India.
0: So your what? question, are you thinking mainly about the things like the offsetting the carbon footprint of a plane flight, or are you thinking about...
2: No, it's about, no, both the, the, whole, whole, it's about the, the whole the of whole it because it's, like, okay. it's, it's um, it
1: personally, you know, one person is not a, not a huge deal, though
2: so it
4: all, business adds up. Travels, That's right. all adds
1: up. But it is a whole sort of uh, it's it's a
5: lifestyle and it's approach to um, to the world. And it but
4: it, it is sort of the whole approach. Like there's a the whole way of business and trade and collecting and everything is, is that way. I do think one thing that everybody here offers is that is we're doing it differently, and at least perhaps that is balancing. But I don't think there's I mean I uh, there's an ideal of that we just shouldn't. Use uh, you know fuel anymore, or go or travel anywhere. Just stay put. There's that. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. that argument yeah. for sure. But do we? But like I wonder a if there's. A, yeah, I wonder if the, if there's a, a something positive being done by a balancing, because uh, mm-hmm. otherwise, I think at this stage, just anything will come in because there's this relentless need to produce and sell and 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 influence other cultures that. Um, better to
1: replace it with a which different replaces model. something
4: positive yeah. in this way than to not do anything at all I can't bear actually to not do anything at all
0: Lynn, yeah. you can to this.
4: well I again it's wonderful to
2: to examine this issue and it it's certainly I struggle I struggle with my footprint both when I'm a working traveler and just you know in day-to-day living you know um, the choices that I am making at any given time there is the ideal that I you know aspire to in my life and then there's the reality of just simply you know getting getting th- through the day and, and I'm you know that sort of constant level of trade-off you know okay I'm, I'm comfortable doing it this way but I'm not comfortable you know doing it, it that way you know I would be happy to travel by camel yak <laughs> you know any of those um, Unfortunately, it's just, it's not, it's not realistic. I think perhaps, because I am, a lot of my work is focused on animals, and so I am right down in the soil, I am right down in the earth, and I am seeing that impact at, at a very quantifiable level. Um, it is, uh, it's, it has brought such a level of awareness to me Quick, quick example, the sheep population in New Zealand has declined by 50% in the last 15 years because there is more money to be made in exporting dairy solids than there is to be made in wool. So you have all these sheep farms that are now becoming dairy farms. Well, that sounds good, animal for animal, grass for grass. No, cows are much harder on the land, they drain the water table, they damage the earth, and so... All of a sudden, you have changed the entire, you know, eco-balance of this particular mm-hmm. scenario. These are the types of stories that, in my job, I think it is so important to make people aware of, you know? It's just mm-hmm. learning to keep looking at what the next step is. The camel the camel in Mongolia has become... there. I believe it's only 400,000 camels left in Mongolia because they've been totally replaced... By the motorcycle, Mm -hmm. well talked about. You know, a lousy carbon footprint right there. For me, it boils down to on any given day, what is Linda doing, just as an individual, that that hopefully is um, the next right thing. But
4: But I I agree. I agree. Ellen is bringing up a really good point because, and that's what we're kind of trying to Mm -hmm. figure out, even by having something like a symposium to try to get us out of that, you know, just, you know, think local, act global, whatever, all those Mm catchphrases that we, fair trade, all these things, but to think about and try to um, understand the impact, say, of of what we wear, and and how huge, how, that that every time we replace synthetic, uh, natural fiber with a synthetic fiber, the the impact of that that means that natural fiber has not been purchased and that has been replaced by a petrochemical fiber these imp- I don't think I, I I hope what's coming across in the symposium is that understanding of our very actions on a larger level buying less having our clothing be more Proactive, be more of an activist movement, and, and, and have fun at it. Learn about the other the impact of what it is we wear. by organic cotton. There should be we should really uh, be very very activist. Activist, I don't like yeah. But uh, in 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 cotton, there's no room in our lives as fairly privileged people to uh, bring in conventional cotton. It's a nasty nasty crop. Is as uh, Sheila said about the uh, Uzbekistan. Yeah, um, there's, why are we supporting it? And, and you know, and when it is, we just need to buy less and make our buying choices more. We are, that's the gate, gate <laughs> there, yeah. uh, buying choices more. You're I think right. that we can really yeah. make huge strides of difference.
0: You've been listening to Part 3 of The Working Traveler, recorded live at the Maywa Textile Symposium on October twenty 2009. I'm Tim McLaughlin. Thank you for listening.